This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is promoting hiring bonuses to recruit police officers and he's lauded officers who've moved from other states to work for Florida police departments. At a press conference in Lakeland back in September, DeSantis was joined by former NYPD officers who talked about conditions in New York and why they decided to relocate to Florida. Elise Elder is a reporter with WUFT's Fresh Take Florida. Last month, she reported on the background of some of the officers that the Lakeland Police Department hired. Elise, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. It's an honor to uh, be here and speak on this subject. Um, Before I get into the specifics of the story, I want to mention that I am a reporter, like you said, for Fresh Take Florida, um, and this is an advanced journalism course within the University of Florida. So that being said, uh, our students have the opportunity to not only have stories published on a statewide level, but also uh, nationwide, which is uh, gratifying and a little bit nerve wracking at the same time. Uh, But definitely was about accountability, credibility, transparency, because not even considering uh, police officers, but also considering politicians and DeSantis as our governor, um, sometimes political figures will publicly announce a certain agenda or idea without properly vetting the background of that prior to its promotion. And I really think that that was the case here. So what made you want to dig deeper into the story? Um, Well, I had seen the press conference DeSantis had back in early September. Um, He had proposed a piece of legislation where um, it's going to be addressed next year in 2022. $5,000 signing bonus to anybody in or out of the state of Florida that would like to start a new career as a law enforcement agent. And on top of that, he also proposed out-of-staters can take the certification exam free to become a Florida police officer, as well as they will be allotted uh, up to $1,000 to help with training-related costs. So I guess I was really interested, especially because all of the 12 officers had come from Uh, New York City, I found interesting because DeSantis had mentioned also in the press that many areas in the country are contacting his office directly, um, speaking about low morale, and the police officers may feel that they're not getting the support they need, whether it be from the community and the citizens or from the law enforcement agencies themselves. So I wanted to investigate further this sort of back the blue movement that uh, DeSantis had done in this press conference. So what stood out to you about the officers that the Lakeland Police Department hired and and some of the details about their backgrounds? Right. Um, So I had submitted a public records request um, with Lakeland PD in order to get all 12 of the officers' uh, employment applications. It took me a couple of months to get all those applications back fully redacted. Um, They had charged us about $50 for that document or all those documents. Um, I also relied on some court documentation and records as well as disciplinary records from the NYPD. And I found some pretty interesting things for sure. Um, Notably, some backgrounds were more interesting than others. I want to note before I speak on any of the officers specifically that Lakeland uh, would not allow me to pull any of the officers out of training to interview with them one-on-one. So here we go. Teddy Coelho was one of the officers prior to being hired at the NYPD. He was fired as a security guard at Walmart, um, and he was fired because he violated company policy. Uh, Back in 2018, when he was working for the NYPD prior to Lakeland's hiring him, um, he had actually gotten a disciplinary record after having found a controlled substance in his police cruiser. And uh, he was given a verbal set of instructions according to that document. It's also interesting to note that um, in his employment application to Lakeland, 
he had been asked a question if he was ever uh, disciplined in any way, and he answered not applicable. Another um, officer, Mohammed Shah, again in 2018, was disciplined with the NYPD after interfering with a citizen who was videoing a police altercation. Um, in the document, it says that he was given a commanded discipline, but it was not further substantiated other than that. I think the most notable officer to talk about, um, I've done extensive research comparatively to all of the other officers, is Raimundo A. Fairman. He, prior to being hired to Lakeland PD, was an expert in the anti-crime unit of plainclothes officers with the NYPD for 11 years. And as you, I'm sure you know, that was a very controversial unit that was disbanded back in 2020. And although they make up a small, small portion of the total officers on NYPD's force, they account for more than half of the police officer-related shootings. Now, um, I had spoken with Robin Tillett, who is a spokesperson for Lakeland PD, and she had said that Raimundo Behrman uh, was never involved in any police-related shootings. But I did find through court records that him, along with other officers, had beaten a man back in 2015, and the city had to settle with this individual for almost $180,000. So those were the, the most notable officers with really... Uh, newsworthy backgrounds. Some had some gaps in their resumes um, a couple of years where they didn't explain any work or experience that they were developing. Um, and then some also had asked for much larger salaries than what they were being paid at the NYPD and also right. how much uh, Florida pays, which they start uh, base pay for officers once they're certified at about $50,000. Mm -hmm. It does seem that Florida police officers stand to earn a bit more money you know, from the baseline level than the New York Police Department, right? I mean, that was one thing that stuck out to me about the reporting is it doesn't seem like a starting officer gets very well paid in New York City. So you can see why on the face of it, they're interested in relocating if that's an option. Of course. And I mean, given the fact that they weren't aware or many of them probably were not aware of what the base pay Florida has. So maybe they were trying to ask for a higher uh, income than what they would have mm -hmm. expected, but they just didn't realize that that um, wasn't what Florida had paid officers. What did the Lakeland Police Department then tell you about their hiring process when you brought some of this, or some of these details uh, to them and or asked them about some of these details about the backgrounds of these specific officers? I found them to be very tight-locked. Um, I was only able to ever correspond with Robin Tillett, that spokeswoman I had mentioned, when I had spoken to her via email about this, it seemed that they were confident in their hiring process. Um, she was very adamant to tell me that um, their background investigators do a very thorough job um, questioning polygraph tests in order to determine if they're a correct fit. But uh, other than that, she hadn't mentioned anything specifically towards these cases with these officers. And that's also something I want to mention um, is in doing this reporting, I also had sent the published work over to Tillett and Lakeland PD, which I never got a response from. Let me ask you about the governor then too. I mean, you, you talked about the uh, press conference at the top of our interview, and he's had a number of press conferences to talk about his efforts to help recruit law enforcement officers in Florida, whether uh, from in-state or, or from other states. But how much influence does the governor have on recruitment, or in this case particularly? That is a great question. Um, obviously, the governor is a very busy man. Um, so, no, he did not have any direct um, impact in the hiring process of these individuals. 
However, um, he did have one of the officers, Matthew Spado, come and speak about his experiences. Um, and in lauding these police officers during that press conference, um, he should have taken that professional step to vet the backgrounds of these individuals before going and praising their uh, work and their hiring at Lakeland. What's the takeaway then for you, having gone through these records and done some pretty deep digging into the whole process here? What What do you think police departments ought to be doing when they're looking to recruit from out of state or from other police departments? Definitely be adamant about accountability and transparency. Like I said at the beginning of this interview, Our police departments and officers, people want to feel that they are being protected by law-abiding citizens. And so it's important that they take accountability for vetting these people before they put them in force. And with all the research that I've done, I think I want to continue. I was um, contacted by an associate professor from uh, John Jay College in New York, and um, he's done some research that was dovetailing with mine about officers who are disciplined within the NYPD, but then they are transferred to another uh, agency or another location before those disciplinary records or comments can be substantiated. So essentially, there's no paper trail of this of these disciplinary record or the uh, actions against you know these officers. Um, so that is something very interesting that I want to follow up on um, and do further research. But um, to kind of put this on an end note, I really uh, was overwhelmed by the attention that I got from the story. I mean, notably good and bad, but a lot of people had considered this a hit piece or an expose with personal bias. And I definitely omitted my opinion. Everything that I reported on came from court records, public records requests, email correspondence, uh, disciplinary records. Um, even DeSantis's uh, press secretary, Christina Bouchard, had come via Twitter to say that um, this was tattletale, petty, stupid journalism, which is just not the case. At the end of the day, the facts are the facts, and that's what I reported on. So you got quite a bit of pushback, it sounds like, after publishing. Yes. Um, and like I said, good and bad, there were some people that were very impressed with the article and um, very kind. And then there were some very ugly ones as well. But at the end of the day, I'm proud of what I published because I know that my opinion is not in that article. The facts are. Well, Elise Elder is a journalist with WUFT. Her story for Fresh Take Florida about officer recruitment is titled Former NYPD Officers in Florida Heralded by DeSantis Include Surprises. You can find a link to that article in her reporting on our website, WMFE.org. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. Still to come on Intersection, who's paying attention to redistricting maps? Not enough people, according to political commentators Chris Carmody and Dick Batchelor. We'll have that and more when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The Florida State Guard hasn't been active since World War II when it took on the role of National Guard while US troops were fighting overseas. Now Governor Ron DeSantis wants to bring it back. He and his supporters say there's a practical purpose for the State Guard. Opponents, though, are alarmed. Joining us for more on this topic and other issues making headlines, including the Governor's handling of the ongoing pandemic, are political commentators Dick Batchelor and Chris Carmody. Well, Chris Carmody is a shareholder with Gray Robinson and a Republican political analyst. Uh, Chris, thanks for being back. Absolutely. Also joined by Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker, founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group and Democratic political analyst. Dick, thank you as well. Thank you. Good to be back. 
Well, let's start with the call by Governor Ron DeSantis to reinstate the Florida State Guard. This is uh, an entity that hasn't been around for many, many decades. Um, Chris, what is the strategy here? What is there some practical use to this? Well, getting into the practicality, as you said, it hasn't been a while, around for a while. In fact, the last time it was active was during the World War when uh, it was used to replace the folks that went off to fight in the war that was in the National Guard. Um, you know, it, there is some good uses of these funds already, I see, with they're going to replace and repair uh, three of the major armories in the state, which the National Guard and this new Florida National Guard or Florida Guard, excuse me, We'll both be able to take advantage of, right, and have a better place where they can set up camp and 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 deal with uh, emergencies as they hit Florida. Um, and you know, it, no matter what he says, whether his intentions are are political or not, it's going to be spun politically. He's a nationally profiled candidate, even though he's only running for governor right now. So his words, uh, whatever they may, they are, will be used against him or for him, depending on who's speaking. Dick Batchel, what's your take on it? Because uh, if you set aside the practicality of it, people who say this is a is not a good move are saying it's tantamount to raising a private army of sorts. Is that a fair assessment? Well, the thing about this uh, guard that he wants to create, uh, I, there's no use for it, number one. Number two, they're supposed to supplement what the National Guard can't do, which I don't know what that would be. Uh, number three, he doesn't want this to report to the federal government to be a state reported. Keep in mind, this is all part of the grand design of the campaign. He's rep- replicating what Governor Abbott is doing in Texas. You know, he sent um, you know FDLE people down to the border, and it goes on and on. And we'll talk, touch on some more topics, but it's all about not only getting reelected in this uh, coming election, but it's also about running for president. So. There will be a number of these issues that we'll discuss today, but it's all part of the design. So, you know, don't don't think of these are just happenstance. These are very well designed issues, and what I would call red meat issues. Chris, two hundred troops for this Florida State Guard doesn't sound like an awful lot. I just wonder what the the value of of those troops would really be for a state the size of Florida. I mean, if he was going to do it, why not go bigger? That, that's a fair question, I think. I will say this. Uh, it's not as if the National Guard is going away. It's it's mm-hmm. 200 additional troops to supplement what's going on. And, and, and Dick's right. Look, the politics are what they are. And and, and this governor, um, he's smart. He understands how when he says stuff, as I was saying earlier, it's going to be portrayed different ways. So they, when they message this, they know that going out there. But, you know, Florida's knock on wood, haven't had a major hurricane in a while, but we're not without those. We, we, we're we still dealing with a pandemic. Hopefully we don't have any other flare-ups. And this gives another option. You know, the, one thing that's not getting discussed is, uh, you know, the vaccine mandates of those in the National Guard. Uh, in theory, someone under the Florida Florida Guard would not be required to have that uh, vaccine. And so while, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on vaccine mandates or not, this might give someone who wants to serve but can't serve in the National Guard at the moment because they don't want to get a vaccine, an opportunity to continue to serve. So there's certainly going to be politics in this, but but I do think there could be some value that comes out of this as well. Let's talk a little bit about police recruitment. The governor is touting um, hiring incentives, $5,000 hiring incentives. He's also talking about bonuses for first responders. Um, the, he's also talked uh, in the not-too-distant past about bonuses for teachers too. So do these things go hand-in-hand, Dick, or is there something else at play here with uh, the likes of police recruitment specifically? 
Well, I, I'm going to bifurcate the issue here because of, Fortunately, I've uh, applauded the governor to pass for his, uh, when he was first elected, saying he wanted to get teacher pay up to $50,000 a year, which puts us near the top. We were near the bottom. So I applaud the governor for his leadership there. And so he kind of, that, that, that appeals to a lot of more moderate people. But recruiting police officers from places like New York, and here's the deal. It's a crime-ridden city. You know, it's a liberal, democratic mayors that can't run a city. It's defunded police. It's all subtleties and optics and politics. So it's basically that. So we have an overture, recruit police officers, bring them from those liberal cities where the Democratic people or the Democratic leadership can't govern. They don't respect the police. Bring them to Florida. So it, that's the political, that's the raw political message. It's all about optics. It's all about the campaign. Chris, do you think the governor needs to shore up support from law enforcement? I don't think he needs to shore up support, but uh, you shouldn't take any of your bases for granted. Uh, and, and I think if you look at polling, this this polls very well, whether within his own Republican base or the Democratic base or NPAs. I think most folks, I don't think, I know I've seen the numbers, uh, they acknowledge that it's not easy being a, a law enforcement officer, whether you're with a, a city police or a sheriff's office or even mm-hmm. you know a highway trooper. And so, you know, giving them raises and hiring bonuses where they're already having a hard time recruiting folks um, to, to come into the ranks, I think is a positive sign. Yeah. The poll, as, as Dick said, that, you know, never miss an opportunity to, to make some good politics out of something. And, and so I'm not going to, you know, uh, you know, judge him or critique him for that, but yeah, having a bunch of New York officers come down, which apparently some don't have the best records uh, from their times in New York. That's, that's the theatrics of it all, but the policy Um, I think is going to go over very well, not just within his base and within law enforcement, but across the state. Because everyone recognizes, just like teachers, as you led with, um, it's hard to recruit into these ranks right now. It's not an easy job. Chris, I wonder, could there be a credible primary challenge to Governor DeSantis? No, uh, not to be so short on it, but he's got, what, last I checked, 60 plus million in the bank. He just opened his campaign account. That will continue to flow in. Um, and he, and frankly, you're going to have a hard time finding anyone with any sort of name ID that's that's more right of him. He's he's to his credit, he's managed to thread that needle of being conservative and more conservative than than the average Joe. Yet also still finding a way to appeal to the middle the middle voter um, on certain issues, especially in how he's handled the pandemic. He, he, he's I think he's written off some of the far left and even moderate left voters. Um, and that maybe was a calculus early on during the pandemic, but MPA middle of the road voters are very, very interested in supporting him again. If you look at polling and certainly within his own base, um, the only person in the state that might be considered more popular within the party than him is the guy that lives in Mar-a-Lago. And that's even up to debate. Let's talk about redistricting for a moment. One map could make re-election tricky. One proposed map could make re-election tricky for Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy. Chris Carmody, she was actually mulling a run for a different office earlier in the year. How secure do you think that seat is for her? Well, it depends on which map comes through. As as you know, the, the Florida Senate has proposed a few congressional maps and the Florida House has proposed a few congressional maps. One of the, I think both of the Florida House maps, at least one of them, are the ones that are problematic for Congresswoman Murphy. Um, you know, and yeah, it was rumored she was thinking about Senate, um, and I don't think she's done thinking about Senate, but I think that will be two years from now uh, when she, you know, when another senator is up on the ballot in Florida. 
Uh, so in her mind's eye, if you believe that, she's got to find a way to win um, and just hold this seat for two years. It doesn't matter if it two years or four years from now it shifts more right or, or more center where she'd be vulnerable. She's got to hold on for two years if she thinks she's running for U.S. Senate. Um, you know, but if the House maps hold on, you know, it'll get real interesting because she may start to look over at uh, Congresswoman Deming's seat, right, and say, well, could I go in there? Could I win the primary? And if I win the primary, I could win the whole thing. You've already got a couple decent candidates in that race, but I think it's still pretty early because, as you know, the House and Senate have to, to work out these maps and agree to them. And then, oh, by the way, the governor actually has veto power over the congressional maps, uh, not line item veto. That would be interesting. Just he can either approve it or not. So he's going to have uh. some input. So I think the, that the congressional maps, I think it's, it's a bit early on that. If it was that Florida House seats or Florida Senate seats, those are probably a little more cooked. Um, but the House and Senate got to figure out a way to, to agree on these. And I think Central Florida is going to be where the, the differing points occur. Mm-hmm. Dick, you'll take on that. Yeah, first of all, keep in mind that Florida thought we, after the census, would get two congressional seats. We're only getting one. The way the maps are looking now, they're trying to create a district in Polk County, which is interesting because you remember uh, a very popular incumbent Republican, Dan Webster, got moved so far to the West, you never read him about him or hear about him in the local media anymore. And Sabatini was Representative Sabatini from Lakeland, was, uh, Lake County, was talking about running against him, which was suicidal mission, in my opinion. But anyway, so who's going to shift over there? If I were 17 or somebody or anybody, there'll be a list of those. Anytime there's a vacant seat, some candidates will go there. As regards Stephanie Murphy, of course, the Republicans really want to, interesting, because she's a moderate Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd be the 24-year incumbent, John Micah. Uh, she can raise a lot of money. Uh, she's being seen as in the middle. She did very well last campaign. So I, I think she's strong. Now, can they redraw the district and push over to Volusia County, push her uh, somewhat west and pick up some more Republican votes and, and put her at risk? Yes, they can do that. But I think the one thing that, more than one thing, but they're, keep in mind the two constitutional amendments that passed on reapportionment uh, really put some guardrails on the reapportionment process. So they have to be very careful because it also can be challenged in court. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think there are some restrictions that the legislators have regarding reapportionment of the constitutional directives that don't give them the free will they would like to have to just redraw these districts. Are people really paying enough attention to redistricting, or is there just too much else going on? Uh, no one's no, paying attention, in my opinion. Actually, actually, it's worse than that. No one cares. Uh, <laughs> I think you know, some groups care. The advocacy groups, legal women voters, cares. You know, uh, some. Uh, some uh, organizations care, but the average member of the public, I mean, if you start with gas prices which are going down, the economy or jobs or the pandemic, by the time you get out of reapportionment, people are going to go like none of the above. Mm. It's, uh, I mean, all of the above. Uh, it, it's just not a, it, it will, as they come up with the quote final maps, then you'll see some people really uh, coming out. But uh, even then on a relative scale, it's not going to be that big of an issue, frankly. Chris, if nobody's paying attention to it, that's probably good news for Republicans, right? Yeah, if you're, if you, whatever state you're in, if you're the map maker, um, it's good news that no one's paying attention. Although I, I would say, knowing some of the folks on both the House and Senate chambers that's working on this, I think they would prefer people pay attention because they're they're putting a lot of effort in um, and and with a goal of putting a map to forward that won't be um, legally uh, defeated. 
Uh, they know it'll be challenged. Legal women voters will more more than likely challenge at least one version of the map um, because it, it you know incumbents tend to take care of incumbents even though constitutionally you can't you're not supposed to. So they're, of course the Republicans are going to draw maps that are probably more likely to favor Republicans. But um, yeah, I, I think they would like the attention, but they don't want some of the rabble rousing. And, and you had some of that with the House maps that came out last week was the final committee week for the House and Senate, mm-hmm. and um, the House had the open conversation on their congressional and their own house maps. And, you know, there was some, there was some theater on both sides on that um, because of, again, the point you brought up about Congresswoman Murphy, it, look, it, it felt as if the house Republicans were drawing the seats to favor a little too much, the Republicans. Um, and so there was some theatrics about it. There was some, some hand wringing, but again, if I pulled 20 of my closest friends, maybe one would bring that up. And, mm. and I, and it would be because they know what I do for a living, not because they actually think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Matt, I, I made the point. I use the term grand design up front. Back up on that again, because I want to. If you think the Republican attorneys general, of which are about half the states or more now represented by Republicans, when they're litigating against vaccines and, and uh, vaccine re- requirements, mm-hmm. and they did you look at to the states where they're looking uh, to do reapportionment and look at the states where they're trying to do tap down road, I think tap down voter turnout. Uh, it's all part of a national Republican effort, very well coordinated, very well coordinated to basically you take reapportionment, get rid of Democrats all as you can. You do, you do, you know, race as you do the uh, tap down on the voter turnout and, and then you tap down the voter turnout support among Democrats, primarily minorities it's all part of an effort. This, there's nothing happenstance about it. It is all very well orchestrated. And again, I go back to the governor. The governor is a very, very smart and shrewd politician. This is obviously not our area of interest, but um, what kind of challenges do you think Stacey Abrams faces in her gubernatorial campaign in Georgia? Well, I, I think having come so close the last time in that race, and what is going to, and she's written a book, so she's got a lot of notoriety. She goes in with a lot of name recognition. But here's what is to her advantage. You just saw the former United States senator from Georgia decided to run against the incumbent governor mm-hmm. yep. because of Trump endorsing Purdue against incumbent governor. That is going to really be a dogfight. And uh, there's going to be a lot of blood shed between those two. Republican nominees or candidates, I should say, in the primary, that is to Stacey Abrams' benefit. The more they can damage each other, maybe hobble out of the uh, out of the primary, that gets her some strength. So to and she'll attract national money. So obviously, the money factor she can match. If they hurt them themselves, which they will in the primary, you cannot not hurt yourself in a better primary. Republican hurts himself, then she, that gives her an opportunity. So I think it's going to be a very, very interesting national race. Real quick on the point about reapportionment, Dick said, just so, so we get it out there. If you're a democratic controlled state, you are trying to draw maps that benefit your party. And if you're a Republican controlled state, so while Dick may be correct, there, there, there is certainly, I think there's coordination on both sides. Um, but the group represent us, I believe is the name. It's a national nonpartisan, uh, not nonprofit group that kind of ranks these maps. They've targeted both Republican and Democratic maps across the state of being a little too favoring of incumbency um, or, or their, their incumbent party. So 
I think that's just sort of a symptom of the people in power want to stay in power, even if they have altruistic motives at the end of the day to be to be good servants for their state. Regarding Stacey Abrams, I think I would just be shocked if she doesn't win this. And I don't mean to, to downplay the efforts of Republicans in Georgia, but you have a fractured party now, fractured from the, the former president who continues to, to, to needle in there. Uh, the incumbent governor doesn't have the support, as Dick pointed out, um, of his own party within. And you have celebrity. And, and, and she, she went from kind of not well-known and, and created a name for herself to she's become a national celebrity of sorts, not just in the political world. People know her. And I think that the one thing that's hard for people of any party to understand, sort of like, how did Trump win and how did he almost win the second time? It's because he was appealing to more than just the people in his party. Mm-hmm. And it's always hard for the, the other side to see that. It's hard for Republicans to see it with Stacey Abrams because she is such a lightning rod to them within the party, but she appeals to middle, middle of the road NPA voters. And if you can get a decent, decent amount of those NPAs, the, the election is over in a state like Georgia, where it is, as we've seen in the last cycle, it's pretty, pretty razor thin down the middle. So she's, she's going to appeal to the middles with that celebrity and she's well-known and, and well-liked. I don't think it'll be close, actually. Just wanted to circle back to the pandemic real quick, if I could. We have the threat of Omicron. Of course, there's a case in Florida now. Pandemic is kind of rolling on. Chris, real quickly, what do you make of the governor's strategy so far with respect to vaccinations, how they're encouraged or enforced, or maybe some pushback against that? I think in the special session, you got what you were hoping for on the vaccines. If you're if you're a citizen or a business owner, it wasn't. You know, it, the governor's public statement certainly made it seem like he wanted to go a little further on businesses. But I think with the legislative pushback, they ended up in the right result. And that is, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to if you're if you're a business and you want to require it, you just have to create certain exceptions that that would allow an employee that has a unique situation to not have to get a vaccine. If that's if they, whether they choose to do it or they have a health reason not to. Um, generally, though, his his handling of the pandemic has been solid again. Aside from some of the theatrics and some of the back and forth with with the Democrats on the other side, when you get to the governor's policies and how he's approached the state, generally speaking, I would give it an A. Um, it's our numbers are down. Even when we've had our spikes, he's, he did things like the monoclonal antibodies treatment centers, which at first were kind of made fun of. And then by the end of it, everyone wanted one. All the states wanted them because they realized it was a it was an answer. I think if you don't like his response, it's because you don't like the way he's handled it, right? You don't like, I, I think he's been accused of not having enough empathy in the situation. And maybe that's fair. Um, but but when you look at his just straight policies and how he's handled it, is everything perfect? No. But generally speaking, he's, he's allowed our businesses to stay open. He's given citizens choices of what they want to do. But also while trying his best to respect the fact that not everyone wants a, a jab or a poke, as they call it, with, this, with the shot. A lot of people do. How do you balance both sides' interests and create some public safety? I think he's done a great job. Again, I, I can do without the theatrics, but that's just not a critique of him. It's of any politician that tries to take advantage of those situations. I think the policy has been sound, though. Dick Batchelor, last 30 seconds here. How would, you, how would you rate his handling of the pandemic and looking ahead to Omicron? How do you think we're shaking out as 2022 rolls in? He made a cold, callous determination to be outright political and ignore the number of deaths during the peak of the pandemic and one and two. And then you get a health officer who should be uh, 
removed from, he should have his license taken away. He's now doing these public service announcements to talk about alternatives to treatment for in lieu of the vaccine. You're talking about the state surgeon general there? Yeah, I'm sorry, the state surgeon general. So it, it just consistent with that. It just denied, denied, denied. At the same time, you're denying the facts and denying vaccinations. It, the cold, callous calculation politically was, I'll take the deaths over that policy. Hmm. We'll have to leave it there. Dick Batchelor, former Democratic state lawmaker, founder of the Dick Batchelor Management Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And Chris Carmody, shareholder with Gray Robinson and Republican political analyst. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me. Still to come, how much new housing could you fit on the site of an old shopping mall? Austin Valley says the Fashion Square Mall on Colonial Drive is an opportunity to design a big, bold future for city residents. That conversation when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Transportation is just as important as housing in the quest to make Orlando a better place to live. That's according to Austin Valley with the advocacy group Orlando Yimby. Valley says he's pushing the city to address both issues and he says a proposed redevelopment of Fashion Square Mall on Colonial Drive is an opportunity to build even more housing than the 1,400 units the developer wants. So tell me a little bit about Orlando Yimby. What is it? Uh, YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard, and we are an organization that advocates for housing abundance in Orlando, essentially. And how long have you been around for? We started in March of this year, so what's that, about nine months or so. There's chapters all across the U.S. It's a global movement, but our chapter here in Orlando, we set up here a few months ago, nine months ago. And... What is the role of Orlando Yimby? Like, what, what do you see yourself doing? What are your goals? Yeah, so as far as we see it, there is a severe housing shortage in Orlando, and that's leading to what we all know to be a severe affordability crisis here in Orlando. When you adjust for median wages, Orlando is the fifth least affordable region in the country for housing. And we view a significant piece of that as being there's not enough, especially not enough housing near our uh, downtown core. Right? There's not enough housing near opportunity. And so what we do is we advocate for changes in policy and changes in projects to make sure that we're building enough housing such that the supply outpaces the demand and folks can have an affordable place to live. So right now we're standing outside of the Fashion Square Mall and this place has kind of fallen victim as a lot of shopping malls in the United States have to, I guess, the hollowing out of of malls, right? I mean, they can't really compete. A lot of these stores with uh, Amazon and other online retailers, and that's been bad for in-person retail up to now. So there are plans to redevelop uh, this mall, and part of that plan would call for some mixed use, which includes some apartments, some uh, some housing. But you say it's not enough. So talk to me about what your vision for this site is. Yeah, we love to see mixed-use development. We talk about malls being hollowed out and the the issues that a lot of commercial spaces are having. The best thing you can do for for businesses is put housing near it. It gives you an automatic set set of customers to uh, frequent those businesses. And so we look at a site like this. There are uh, fewer and fewer opportunities, it seems, every year to have what is close to a blank slate near your downtown core. We are about two miles from downtown. You look around, sometimes it feels like we're in Oviedo or something, right? It's not built out like a downtown is. And so what we want to do is uh, make sure that we are taking advantage of these fewer and fewer opportunities and that we're not, uh, you know, eating a significant opportunity cost of building, you know, mixed use, which is good, building a good amount of housing, which is 
don't get me wrong, better than the status quo. We would much rather there be 1,400 units of housing here than just a mall. Uh, but we view the fact that if you were to build housing that is not dense enough, now you've locked that in for the next several decades. And we're at a point where we can't continue to squander opportunities. We like to say that good enough is not good enough anymore and that we're going to push to make sure that this is a world-class neighborhood that has mixed use, that has transit, that connects to downtown, that doesn't require its residents to have cars, that doesn't require its residents to have to drive to anywhere that they want to go. We want to build out neighborhoods in Orlando that are walkable, that are transit-oriented, that have density to them. And there are fewer and fewer opportunities left to do that. Um, And this is one that wouldn't require you to displace existing residents, existing neighbors. You can kind of start from scratch. And when you can start from scratch, it gives you opportunity to think bold and think big. And so what we're urging the community to do is to do just that, is to think bolder and think bigger. There is actually a bit of development happening around this area already. I mean, if you look at the start of the Katy Way Trail, you know, just five years ago, that was quite different from how it is now. There's there's already some, some apartments going up there. So you do see some of the kind of development that you're talking about starting to happen in stages. That's right, yeah. You, you do see this, you know, I think another example, you mentioned Katie Way Trail, which connects, of course, to Baldwin Park, which was another opportunity where uh, it was, to some extent, a blank slate. I grew up born and raised in Central Florida, so I remember all of that going up. This is another one of those, right? And we're several decades past that, and we've learned some more, and we've continued to see um, what development happens in Orlando, which is continue to be car-centric. It's dense, but not dense enough. Uh, it's... You know, there's sidewalks, but is it truly walkable? Um, I've not seen statistics, but my guess would be that the vast, vast, vast majority of folks that live in Baldwin Park drive to their jobs, drive to the Publix with a giant parking lot in Baldwin Park, right? That's stuff, it's, it's good, don't get me wrong, but um, we can think bigger and we can think better. You know, I, I, think, I think if we look for the right comparison in Orlando, we will never find it. Right, what we in Orlando Yimby like to do is point to, we've got to send news crews to Copenhagen and Amsterdam and around the world, places here in the U.S. too, Minneapolis, uh, neighborhoods in, in Boston, neighborhoods in Austin, Texas, that are doing this stuff really well. Right? We're not asking to reinvent the wheel here. We're just looking uh, at places around the world that are world-class cities, uh, and we're, we're saying that we need to bring that here to Orlando as well. Baldwin Park's an interesting one too because... In some ways, that's become a destination for people from other neighborhoods too. You, you look at their, you know, Christmas light displays, and when they have Halloween decorations, people flock to that neighborhood, and that actually becomes a bit of a traffic problem because people, everybody's driving there. But you know, it is, it can be this walkable neighborhood, right? Yeah. If you if you built every neighborhood like that, people wouldn't have to go on vacation to other neighborhoods, right? If if this was a proper neighborhood like that, you wouldn't have to do that as well. You know, the other thing I would point to is we have tens and tens and tens of millions of visitors who visit Orlando every single year. Uh, all around the world, people go and they want to visit walkable neighborhoods. They just want to spend a day in a walkable neighborhood. You actually see this now. If you go to Park Ave in Winter Park on some days, you'll see tourist bus who came from iDrive and dropped them off on, on Park Ave for the day because they want to spend the day out there. Why aren't we doing that to more of our neighborhoods, right? We already have, we don't have to work on getting people to visit Orlando. They're already doing it. And so let's build out more neighborhoods such that we're pulling some of those visitors and having them come to these neighborhoods down here uh, we think that every neighborhood deserves to be some place that is worth visiting, and that's what we're trying to push for this development to be as well. This particular location, though, I mean, it's it's a lot of square footage. I, I, I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but there's a lot of retail space inside. There's also, I mean, we're standing on the a brink of a, a vast, <laughs> pretty empty parking lot. You know, a lot of the stores inside this mall, they've, they've gone away because... 
as we mentioned earlier, they've, they've sort of fallen victim to trends in shopping. But, I mean, this is a lot of land and somehow it has resisted kind of efforts to redevelop up until now. So what's your, I guess, sense of optimism for what the future of this particular site could be? Yeah, yeah, I'm an optimist, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll hope for the best here. Uh, there's a sort of long-standing joke for folks who've been here a long time that there's a race between Fashion Square Mall and the I-4 eyesore to see which one finishes first. But it feels like there's a real opportunity here this time. I know there's a lot of drama around this one with you know different owners of the land versus the property. It's, it's quite complicated, and I won't pretend to understand it fully myself. Uh, but it does feel like there's some energy behind this one. Um, to, and so what we want to do is make sure that we are part of that conversation now. right? If it feels real now, we want to be um, stakeholders at the table to make sure that we are pushing this to be even more dense. We might be the first group in Orlando that's ever put out a demand for a property to be more dense. You normally have neighbors come out and want to make it less dense. So we're at least happy to be part of the conversation here for the first time. You talk about transportation too. Um, how important is it to get everything in place at the same time? Like, Can you actually develop something which is sustainable if you don't already have the transportation infrastructure in place to support it? For example... I mean, one of the requests that, that you put out, that Orlando Yimby put out for this particular site was like, let's include affordable housing. But if you don't include transportation options like, you know, a mass transit system that really works for, for everybody, every level of society, then how are people going to be able to afford to live there? Yeah, it's a chicken and the egg problem, right? So you put the transit first or you put the housing first. And our view is you got to rip the Band-Aid off and do one of them first, right? Or, or do them both at the same time, which is even better. There's actually a bus rapid transit system that has been approved along Colonial, but is not yet funded. And so what we've posed is, what is the correct level of density on this site and sites around here? Because there's many other sites around here that are poised for redevelopment as well that would justify the cost to fund that bus system. And whatever that level of density is, let's go fund it. I think you look at a lot of survey results or you go talk to folks and people in Orlando, they say that they support the idea of transit, right? More frequent rail, more frequent and separated bus lanes, separated bike lanes, things like that. I think it's incumbent on our leaders, and if they're not going to do it, then we're going to do it for them, to educate folks to say that for us to get that level of transit, we need housing density to make that possible. These things go together. And so we absolutely want to see things like bus rapid transit, separated bus lines, bike lanes to get you to downtown. But to do those things, we have to have a level of uh, density, folks who are living here, to justify those costs. That's going to provide the ridership. That's going to provide the use of, of, of amenities like that. Um, so the things are absolutely connected, and we're going to make sure that we continue to advocate for both in parallel. To get there, though, do you think there's a level of pain you have to go through as a commuter? I mean, if you think about Colonial Drive, it can be pretty excruciating making your way along Colonial Drive at rush hour. And the thought of another 1,400 units in this particular location, I mean, that's going to add a whole wave of traffic. And absent a lot more people taking mass transit because, it, let's face it, it, it's not going to be convenient for everyone. That's just going to put more cars on the road in the meantime, right? Yeah, there's a philosophical point here, I think, which is that my thoroughfare and your thoroughfare is someone else's neighborhood. I believe that neighborhoods should be built for the people that live in them and not for the people who drive through them. And so will building out a proper neighborhood with walkability and density slow down the commute of somebody who lives 10 miles further east by four minutes a day, yeah, it might. But that is a trade-off that I think is fair to the folks who want to live two miles from downtown, right? I mean, I, I, again, too, people are moving here, 
right? The traffic is going to occur. The question is, do we want congestion 20 miles away with wider highways and wider roads? Or do we want to put folks two miles from downtown and give them the opportunity to take a bus, to ride a bike, uh, get them connectivity to SunRail, to their jobs? Um, so I think that, that there needs to be a fundamental shift just to say that, you know, folks that live further out oftentimes don't want us to put housing there, but they want full say over what we do to our roads here, right? We need to change that conversation and say, we are, we are going to put housing here, and that means that we're going to build a transportation system for folks who live here. There's also some disagreements from time to time over actually what you do with the roads, right? Because there's been experiments in, you know, road diets and repurposing for for uh, cycleways. That was tried on Curry Ford, and there was a huge hue and cry about that. So, I mean, it could be a bit of a, a mind shift that has to happen before we really sort of see the future that that you and your colleagues at Orlando Yimby see. That's right. You know, at Orlando Yimby, we say that we have to change hearts, minds, and laws. Right? All of those things are important for us to get the word out about a better world that's possible. I do think to that point, though, Matthew, um, you know, changing things piecemeal here and there is very, very tough for some of the reasons that you've pointed out. That's why I think a lot of us believe that you find these big, large-scale opportunities to change all at once, right? Systematically, you're updating the transit, the housing, the amenities all in one neighborhood so that it's less disruptive to folks that are already existing in a neighborhood, right? We have an opportunity here to essentially from scratch scratch, build out a new neighborhood that is to some extent can be self-sustaining in the same way that a place like Baldwin Park, you could in theory, if you had, you know, a job cluster there, have folks that live, work, play all in the same area. If you did something like that here, uh, it gives you an opportunity to, to, to do things right the first time. And so it is in that way too advantageous than trying to disrupt other parts of the city. And then once you've done that, now you've created a new playbook. Now you can give people a chance to see what's possible when you narrow the road and you let opportunities for bikes or for buses. And you can look and you can say, you know, I think we absolutely dream of a city where if you have an incredible colonial town center in total, that you inspire other neighborhoods to say, ah, okay, I see what they're doing there. That's what I want, right? Because not everybody has a privilege to go travel to places like, Copenhagen and the Netherlands and and, and and Paris, right? And so let's bring a little taste of that here. Let folks see it. And there is no, seemingly no bottom to demand for good urbanism, right? You go anywhere in the world and the places that people want to live, the places that people will pay to go live or to go visit are walkable. They're transit connected. They have, you know, three, four, five stories of housing. Uh, they're aesthetically pleasing. That's where people want to live. And I think that if we bring a taste of that, here to Orlando and an opportunity like this, then I think that that's an opportunity to change some hearts, minds, and laws. You probably don't even need to go as far as Copenhagen yeah. or Amsterdam, right? I mean, you could look, for example, just to Disney World. And of course, you know, people don't live there, but everything else, if you look at the transit, right? I mean, that is a company that's figured out how to move people en masse, large distances, and kind of keep them relatively comfortable in the Florida heat, which is a no mean feat, right? I think that's right. You know, you look at a place like, like CityWalk, right? That's a huge, or all the theme parks, right? And these are huge areas where people can go spend 12 hours in a day and not even think about the fact that they're not moving around by a car. I mean, letting folks live in a way that isn't completely centered around a car, again, is not novel, right? It's around the world, it's around the country, to your point. 
it's 30 miles to the south, to the southwest as well. What about the reception you've had from city leaders and county leaders? Like, do you feel like you've got their ear? I mean, there is some interesting development going on in terms of parks that are going up. The park under I-4 is kind of an interesting example of that. You know, I I think to some extent. I I, I think, you know, we're still a new group, right? And so we're still continuing to make those connections and have those conversations. We've had very good conversations with folks that work at City Hall about what we're trying to do. I think there is a, a general sense, not specifically about the city commission or, or specific individuals, but just in general, that the constraint here is a political one. Right? I think most leaders here want to build a world-class city. That's amazing that they're proud to show folks around. I, mean, I don't want to pick on this particular site, but you, 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 know, you walk anyone around a lot of these developments in Colonial Town Center, I, I, are you proud to show them about the city? Right? We're called the city beautiful. There's nothing less beautiful than a parking lot. And so I think that, that there's a, recep- a reception there. What we want to show is that there is a group of residents and neighbors who do believe in stuff like this. And that if we can solve that political constraint for them and show them that actually there is a constituency for people who want walkable neighborhoods, bikeable neighborhoods, buses that connect you to jobs, frequent rail, uh, gentle density around their neighborhoods. If we can help solve that for them, then I think that there will be a lot of openness to what we're trying to achieve. Back to the site and your vision for it and, and your kind of request, I guess, do you really think the developer might say, look, that's a great idea, let's put in more affordable housing or let's let's build more housing? Or is this really just a way to say, let's let's get on the map and have people pay more attention to it? If it's not this development, then something else, you know, down the road a wee bit. Yeah, no, I think this one's real. I think there's a real opportunity here. We've already started to go through the right tra- channels and try to talk to the right people who are involved in this particular project, both on the government side and on the private the private side. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity here. I mean, it's going to take a lot of conversation and discussion, um, but, uh, you know, I think we'll just continue to make the case that it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity. We're not going to just use this. As, our goal will not just be to use this as an example of showing what's possible. We have every intent to influence, to the best of our ability, an opportunity to make this exact site uh, more dense, more transit-oriented, more walkable. You know, what we want to push people to, to think bigger about the opportunities here. Um, Orlando has all the, the parts and the pieces, and we just need the right people to stand up and say that we're going to put them together in the right way. And nothing, 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 nothing that we advocate is outside the realm of possibility. It just takes some uh, big visionary thinking, and we're going to be the ones to come um, help, people, help people see that. Boston Valley, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Matthew. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can also support this program and other reporting from the WMFE news team with a contribution at wmfe.org support. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.